the axe of the blood god. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, U.S. Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Cap Bailey, and with me today is Bob Mackey. Hey, everybody. And as usual, we will go and look at RPGs, big and small, analyze them, pick them apart, discuss them, and go into all of the different topics that surround the genre that we love. This week, we are going to be having an interview with the development team behind Divinity Original Sin 2, including Chris Avalone, who has moved over from Obsidian over to Divinity Original Sin. Last year, Divinity Original Sin was one of kind of the breakout RPGs. Um, was it last year or the year before? I, I'm My mind is blank. I, I know the remember. console version came out last year. So, um, And Divinity Original Sin 2 is going into early access next month. So I have a really cool conversation with them. Before that, we're going to do another RPG pitch. Um, No Super NES perspective this week. Um, We will do it next week when Nadia is back. Um, As for Deus Ex, I I know that I promised that I was going to do um, kind of a review for Acts of the Blood God, but... I already talked about it for our, from us to you, and I don't really feel like I have anything more to say about that game. Yeah, I still need to play more. Again, I'm I'm replaying what I played in the eight-hour preview event, so I'm, I have to <laughs> experience new content before I can have new opinions. Uh, what was your opinion on the eight hours of content that you played? I really liked it. I felt like, uh, like I said in From Us to You, it gave you many, many options to uh, finish a quest, but it didn't like just put an arrow next to them. It let you mm-hmm. figure them out and use the logic of the world to solve problems. So I'm, I'm looking forward to getting past that point that I left off. Yeah, we were talking a little bit off the air about, about its kind of status as an RPG. And uh, this is a thing that we get into all the time. God knows we've talked about games that are definitely not RPGs on this podcast. See Metal Gear Solid Five, but uh, what? It, and as you were saying, uh, Deus Ex is certainly more of an RPG than, say, Mass Effect at this point. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah, so I think what it comes down to is I'm just not that interested in Deus Ex right now. Um, maybe that will change. Once I spend a lot more time with it, but man, did it really bore the crap out of me when I was playing it initially. So I am kind of putting it aside right now. Uh, But if you want a more nuanced opinion, uh, you should go check out our review over on US Gamer or go listen to our conversation on From Us to You. Another thing that I ended up covering on From Us to You was my trip to the Pokemon World Championships, which was also a cover story that I did. I had a lot of fun. It was it was an interesting experience, and it was it was nice to come back and kind of check out where the Pokemon competitive game is right now and the VGCs. I wasn't impressed. I wasn't that impressed with this year's rules because it was a little too legendary heavy for me, and everybody was using the same damn legendaries every time, which was like eh, kind of boring to me. But I'm actually really looking forward forward to Sun and Moon, not the least because it's new and because if they followed a type, they're probably going to keep. Uh, they're probably going to make it so you can only use monsters from Sun and Moon, like that's in the game, which should make for some for a really nice, interesting, self-contained metagame. Anyway, so go check out that article over on usgamer.net. Bob, let's do an RPG pitch. 
Sure, I'm game. All right, so this one is from Joey Molinari. He says, hi, Kat. One of my favorite RPGs that I don't think many people have played is Quintet NX SNES RPG called Robotrek. I first stumbled upon this game while playing through a dump of ROMs in the late 90s and mistook it for a Robotech game. <laughs> Instead of transforming Veritex, I found a charming and odd JRPG. Set in a somewhat modern world on the planet Quintenix, you play the son of a famed inventor, thus making you an up-and-coming inventor. Of course, some evil guys have recently shown up and started causing trouble. What really hooked me was that right off the bat, I got to create my own robot and equip it with various weapons and customization. Combat is turn-based with a little action element thrown in. When your robot's ATP gauge fills you up, fills up, you can move it a certain number of squares on the field, and pressing the L or R or X buttons will allow you to attack with the left, right, or back weapons, respectively. The best little detail? At the start of each battle, your character throws a little Pokeball-looking item and out pops your robot. It is very much like a Pokeball. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> to me, it was like Pokemon with a robot I got to build even though this game was out for a couple years before Pokemon. The game is not perfect by any means. It's a little rough around the edges, there's some random difficulty spikes, and the localization is a little goofy. I think misses some of the intended comedy and just comes across as weird. The main bad guys are goofy little aliens wearing oversized helmets, and one of the early by bosses is a guy with a crab for a head. I'm sold. This sounds amazing. Uh, the Japanese name is Slapstick, so That's I true. assume that the game is supposed to be a comedy. It's not as talked about as Quintet's other games like Act Razor and the Heaven and Earth trilogy games, but this one is so weird with some unique features that I feel in love with it, and it's stuck with me all these years. Thanks for the great podcast. Thanks, Joey. Bob, you sound pretty familiar with Robotrek. Uh, That's true. I, I'm told that this game has robots, so it tell does. me a little about it. It's funny, the name of the game in Japan as the, uh, who was the person again? I'm sorry. Uh, Joey. Joey said, uh, it's called Slapstick, and it's very much like a, a very manga, like comedy manga looking game. But the SNES uh, localization, uh, in terms of what they did with the marketing, the cover looks like a, it could be a Star Trek game. It's like, I think it's like an outer space scene, and the, the font is very Star Trek-y. So I feel like they kind of were not selling what what was actually in the package with that with that uh, marketing. But How many comedy games are even on the Super NES? Yeah, I mean, it felt like it, it wanted to very much be, and I think it made a post-dated Earthbound, but it feels like a very Earthboundy game, and that's a it's a modern day RPG. But again, the uh, I would say abysmal, almost cataclysmically bad. Sorry, cataclysmically bad localization really hurts the comedy this game is going for because um, it's up there when with you like say cataclysmically, like cataclysmically how bad, bad is it on a scale of it one could, the Final Fantasy it could tactics. end the world uh, oh oh it's it's sub tactics at least tactics would make complete sentences <laughs> and at least try to evoke some sort of meaning this is like um, Harvest Moon SNES level of localization where, uh. where you walk up to the stove and it says confirm the origins of fire and you're like okay <laughs> uh, I'll do that <laughs> Yeah, I'm uh, dealing with that right now with the Super Robot Wars OG uh, localization. Woo, boy. Yeah, yeah it's, it's pretty much the same. It's one of those where I feel like there was no person uh, who, where English was their native language who ever looked at the script. It just sort of went through someone who sort of knew English in Japan, and they just fired it out. But it's funny that this game sort of uh, was what killed Enix in the United States. This and things like Paladin's Quest, I believe, and uh, Brain Lord, stuff, stuff like that. They stopped releasing Dragon Quest games in the United States to focus on these things because they're like, uh, no one likes Dragon Quest anymore. Let's just do some other different stuff. And that's why we didn't get 5 and 6. And I think by like 94, 
95, they closed up shop in the United States. Uh, that's I'm speaking of Enix, of course. But then they came back in the PlayStation era, so... That's true. That's after, uh, maybe... No, no, that was before the merger. So, yeah, they, they eventually wanted to get jump back in after uh, Dragon Warrior 7 came out, but... Oh, people yeah. like JRPGs now. Uh, yes. Dragon Quest. Yeah? Yeah? They didn't like it as much as they probably want, wanted people to like it, but I'm, I'm sure it still made something for them. But, yeah, Robotrek is... Uh, it is rough around the edge. It's it's funny thinking about it now is that it sort of had, like, what would would not have been known at the time as a crafting system... Like, thinking about it now, it's like, oh, that was sort of like a crafting system in a very primitive way. Like, you're building different kinds of robots, um, you're making different parts for them, they can have different functions, and they function as your party members. But Joey is right in that there are, like, major difficulty spikes, and that's sort of what kills kills this game for me every time I try to play it. I believe you're, like, it's pretty smooth sailing until you get to the second dungeon, which is sort of like a haunted house, and then, like, things just are too fast, they hit you too hard, and I'm not quite sure how to deal with it, but uh, maybe I need to look at, like, uh, a fact, or maybe I need to find, like, a retranslation of this game that is hiding important tips, because it has a lot of charm, and I think um, it it should be remembered, uh, and, I, and I wish it was localized better, because, again, it's, like, it's, un, it's almost unintelligible at times. You know, I had literally never heard of this game before i read joey's letter uh which kind of shows like this truly is one of the underappreciated rpg pitches uh, that uh, we're talking about have you heard of the twisted tales of spike mcfang i have heard of that one actually it's, it's on that level of like weird silly snes rpgs okay uh so i mean as i've said many times before on this podcast i did not own a super nintendo back in the day so I got a lot of my Super Nintendo news from like Nintendo Power or whatever I saw at Target. And I may have seen Robotrek, like the name kind of vaguely rings a bell. But yeah, this one really flew under the radar. And it's interesting to hear that it was a comedy back in Japan. It really speaks to America's like desire to take even stuff that was kind of supposed to be silly and slapstick and humorous uh, especially in the 16-bit era and localize it as hardcore action rpg thing i mean this wasn't an action game but yeah you get what i mean kind of have there wasn't a lot of nuance in our localization back then. yeah i mean it wasn't like they were trying to paint it as a serious game outside of the the cover art but again i don't think i don't think they had the intention of like let's make sure we translate this comedy well let's make sure every joke lands it's like no let's just make it in english and sell it and and make money there was there was no like uh, nuance like you said for localization. I mean, it was handed over to a like a group of people who apparently were not native speakers. Uh, yeah, I don't think they're gonna really be able to easily do jokes. Like yeah. humor I mean, is just, a pretty thing, tough thing to that, translate. That is just my speculation. But if you if you look at some of the sentences in this game, and, and we're going off on the localization, but it is pretty bad. If you look at some of the sentences in the game, you're like, no one who speaks English would look at that sentence and be like, yeah, that makes sense. That's a subject for an object. Yeah, sure. Let's let's go with that. Like, it does feel like a Final Fantasy IV situation, and and that game, uh, I think that was confirmed. Like the person, I mean, you can if if English is your second language, um, you can communicate just fine, but you might not understand a lot of the nuance depending on your, uh, you know, how advanced you are in that language. And Final Fantasy IV, of course, gave us Spoonie, uh, which is a real word, but it's also like an antiquated word that no one uses. But I think it really brought that back into the language. Yes, yes, it brought Spoonie back into the common usage. Yeah, thank you, Final Fantasy IV. All the kids are saying Spoonie. All the millennials. I like the fact that you can create your own robot. That's kind of cool. That is cool. Yeah, 
and uh, it's a very colorful game. I think, um, uh, I think again, with the marketing, they were afraid to, to let people know what it really was because this was uh, probably like 95, I'm guessing. This was the area, and it's like, games are serious now. And by serious, uh, I, I mean immature and full of boobs and blood and guns and um, a lot of brooding. So there was not a lot of space for a game like this. So I, I do think they were trying to hide what it really was, and they didn't want to bring over Dragon Quest, so they had very little else to choose from. On the subject of NX, um, this was the golden age of Square, you could say. And like Square was turning out all of these games like Seiken Densetsu and Final Fantasy, and later ti- teaming up uh, with Yuji Horii to do Chrono Triggers. Like it, it, truly, they were on a remarkable hot streak. But NX really, I mean, they had Dragon Quest. What else did they have at that time? Well, it's important to note that, um, and I only really discovered this when I was doing an episode of Retronauts about Dragon Quest, but Enix is not actually a developer. They are Mm -hmm. a company who hires developers. Like, there is no internal Enix development team. Like, um, Chunsoft did the first uh, couple of Dragon Quest games, and then Heartbeat did some, and then Level 8 did some, and now I think Square Enix internally made Dragon Quest X. And they're just a company who find people to, um, they find people to make games for them, so... Um, it all depends on, I guess, who's available. And, and, and Quintet was a huge developer for them because obviously they made things like uh, Illusion of Gaia and uh, Soul Blazer and things like that. But um, they did not have like a consistent internal team um, outside of who they contracted regularly for you know certain series. Yeah, and I mean, certainly the Soul Blazer games were pretty interesting back in the day. Um, they certainly had their own following. So that was maybe an example of... Man, Quintet, Quintet slash NX gone right. Yeah, and I guess the game takes place on Quintenix, so it's a little <laughs> that that's just showing you a little bit of like the the uh, the. I mean, it's not a not a hilarious joke, but it's like it's showing you that it's not taking itself very seriously. Oh, but until Dragon Quest VII, NX generally had a pretty good eye for developers, um, and they stumbled a little bit with Dragon Quest VII. You could argue, but. Uh, once Dragon Quest Eight and Nine came out, and for some reason I'm spacing the developer who worked on that. Oh, was that Level Five? Level yeah, Five was, was totally Dragon Quest five. Eight and Nine. Yeah, I mean they did a phenomenal job and kind of became much bigger um, after Dragon and Quest Eight. Like, we'll make our so. own Dragon Quest and call it Fantasy Life, and I mean that was pretty fun, but I don't think anyone really cared all that much. Jeremy sure cared. Yeah. It's a really fun game, and I wish they would make a sequel that uh, you know builds off of that. But I f- it feels like that's going towards mobile uh, fantasy life. Hmm. Yeah. Sounds like a like lot it. of a lot of level five stuff. I mean, that's fine and everything. I just don't think it'll work the way I want it to work on mobile. And level five, um, they're 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 kind of losing a lot of face lately, and I think that's because they're they're changing series in weird ways and moving a lot of things that don't belong to mobile onto mobile. Yeah, it's the ham-fisted. Let's get in on mobile, mobile strategy. Yeah, and uh, from I mean, from all accounts of people that actually live in Japan, the yokai watch phenomenon uh, burned hot and burned fast, and they're sort of now reaching the end of that uh, that phenomenon. Yeah, uh, the the consensus that I got while I was over there was level five is going to level five. I mean, <laughs> yokai watch is not like pokemon is eternal yokai watch yeah it, it was great for a couple years and but they also pointed out that yokai watch 3 is coming out this fall and it's getting a ton of hype over there so oh, i thought that was our i thought that came out in july but 
in, in, in any case, uh, I, I don't know. I thought it was already up, but I, I am looking forward to Yokai Watch 2. I do want to see, like, that game had a, the original, the original game had some promise. I like the premise, but had a lot of, like, quality of life issues and just a lot of un, unintuitive things going on with it in terms of, like, quests and things like that. And I, I do want to see if the sequel will fix those because that'll make for a much better experience. One that I'll probably actually finish this time around, but a lot of those tiny, my, tiny problems just really added up for me um, playing the original Yokai Watch. Indeed. All right. So thanks, Joey, for sending in an R- underrated RPG pitch. Yes. If you want your underrated RPG pitch to be read on the air, send it to cat.bailey at usgamer.net or PM cat.bailey over on the website. Um, I'm still taking pitches. I enjoy hearing what you have to say. And I love these detailed emails. Like people are really passionate about these games that I've never heard of. What I really need is somebody to like pitch Valkyrie Profile so I have an excuse to talk about it on the air for like an hour. That would be really nice. All right. So we're going to continue on to the interview. I'll see you on the other side. All right. I'm in the same room as Chris Avalon and Sven Vinky, who are working on Divinity Original Sin 2, the sequel to the very popular RPG, from I think a couple years ago at this point. Um, I just had a chance to play a whole bunch of it. Um, Died kind of horribly in a dungeon. It was kind of unfortunate, but we had a good time. Uh, So I'm kind of curious, like, the previous RPG, like, did the success kind of catch you off guard? Like, what? how did did you react to all the kind of critical plaudits and everything? Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, we were a little bit surprised because this was a top-down, turn-based, hardcore RPG. So the type of game that people said shouldn't be made anymore. And uh, we started working on it actually before the entire Kickstarter craze started. And uh, so it's, it was very rewarding for us. And so then we basically just continued down the same route. Chris, how did you find your way over to this project? Uh, I actually found my way over because we got introduced through a website. Like, yeah. uh, there's a, a very passionate group of RPG gamers out there in a site called RPG Codex. And uh, when uh, uh, Swen was doing his um, Kickstarter, they're like, hey, well, you should probably see if you can get Chris Avalon on board, and maybe there's a good fit there. So we met at like PAX West, we had dinner. It seemed like RPG mechanics wise, we saw eye to eye on things, and so we just started from there. People aren't familiar with Chris. He has a pretty long history in the RPG space. Um, so you were in Obsidian, and before that, you were in Black Isle. At Black Isle. So it's been a long time. <laughs> yeah, a long time. And now you're here. And how do you, how are you contributing to this project? Uh, so far, it's been uh, doing a lot of story story iterations and story revisions. There's a the core team of writers is actually in Ireland, and then uh, usually we go through Skype and Google Documents, and we sort of go through each plot point and just sort of talk about it, figure out what the player's going to be doing at each um, part of the game, uh, and then also I'm doing one of the origin stories for the game as well. I get to do the, the undead character. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Which we should see today. <laughs> so it's going to be pretty cool. So you, having worked on a lot of RPGs over the years, like what... What stands out to you about Divinity Original Sin? Well, uh, first off, uh, the way they handle dungeon exploration mechanics, I think is really fluid. And what I mean by that, the, the way you can sort of mix and match DAS effects to create interesting um, puzzles in the environment or solve puzzles in the environment. I, th- I think it's very seamless. And the first time I saw it in the first game, I was kind of blown away because I've been so used 
to so long of doing a really special casey like with with dialogue windows or dialogue options but the way divinity handles it is just really really smooth i feel like it's it's much more an interface puzzle mechanic versus like you know a series of menu choices yeah one of the things that i think is really cool and a lot of people love to call out about this series is that you have the abilities and in combat of course you know you're creating the oil and setting things on fire but the abilities also are important outside of combat right um so, for example, we just did a little quest in Original Sin 2 where a guy was like, I need to be teleported somewhere, I'm going to help you out, and my mage already knew how to teleport, and I can use my teleportation ability offensively, but then I could also teleport him to other ledges and everything, and it's pretty cool. Yeah. How did you guys kind of like develop this system? Well, we, we like taking a, a very systemic approach to things, so we were literally considering this as if you would be making a pen and paper RPG, and with the advantage of it being on the computer. And so we set up the rules, and then we, we try to trigger your creativity in using the system to solve the problems. And so we craft problems in such a way that uh, you can solve them using what's present in the rulebook, which is then uh, your skill bar uh, or your abilities to drag and drop uh, items or uh, indeed actually also your uh, stats, like your primary strength or persuasion and so forth. And, uh, I mean, I suppose it's a really good way to also set yourself apart from a lot of other RPGs where there's a, a real kind of barrier between combat and exploration, right? Yeah. There was actually, um, I'm, a, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of a game called Ultima 7, uh, which was one of the first games to do that back in the days. And then, for some reason, um, that path was never developed anymore in the CRPG world. We all went down like Baldur's Gate. Yeah, and that was so weird. It just got lost yeah. like that. There were so many good RPG ideas back in the day that just seemed, seemed to have vanished. <laughs> yeah, but there were, I mean, they get, that, that was publishers, right? From the point of view, from their QA departments, these are nightmares to, to QA. So you could take less risky approaches and still sell a lot of units. And so that's, that, that then happened. So I'm kind of curious, like, what did you learn from Divinity Original Sin that you wanted to kind of apply to Divinity Original Sin 2? Huh. Um, I think that um, there were uh, there was quite some criticism on what we were doing with narratively in the first original Sin. That was because we were so systems-focused. So now we're trying to put a systems-focused approach into the narrative. This is what you see with the tags and the origin stories. And so that uh, we can do fantastic things now. If I take away your human tag and I replace it with a lizard tag, you saw how the entire world changes, how the dialogue changes. You are actually your available quests change also. So that's one thing. That's a big thing for us, uh, how your origins determine your choices and what you can do in the, in the game. And then we're evolving combat. Uh, the original game had uh, problems in the mid and end part of combat, so it was all alpha strikes. So we introduced things like physical armor, magic armor, which absorbed the first strikes, and so you can, you can fully play around with that. Obviously, there's lots of things that you can do to it. And uh, so the combat becomes a, a lot more tactical as a result of that, which is what we like and our players like it also, uh, also like. And uh, I think that's the that. And then the other thing that we're putting on top of that is that you can play with up to four players, and that we put this competitive narrative in there. Now we didn't really go in there uh, yet, but um, the origin quests that you can pick up they are competing with each other. So it becomes interesting when you're playing in a party. What are you going to do that with that? It's like playing uh, Risk cooperatively and having your secret mission card, uh, which is what, what happens when you play the game. So Divinity Original Sin is a, a true turn-based game. So it's like you take your turn, you have your certain number of action points, and then you move on. Um, games that you've mostly worked on, Chris, in the past um, have been 
more kind of a real time, like you pause, you give orders. Um, do you see any like real benefits to being like more pure turn based? Uh, well, it makes it more tactical in terms of being able to sort of be able to like sit down and think and plan out your moves, and also. It definitely helps out with multiplayer because when you're you know playing with someone else, then like here you can talk about the strategies that you're going to do with each other and turn turn based as well. So um, I, I think the advantages there. Yeah, it's one of the coolest things about this game is that it's multiplayer, right? Yeah. And you yeah. can like team up with a friend and go on a quest together. And the, and the fact that the status effects chain like that, or they cancel each other out, like that, just I think just helps the multiplayer experience. And I know that a, a number of my friends who are playing multiplayer; they loved it just for that because then they coordinate their moves a lot yeah. more because like the game allowed for that. You can coordinate moves, but then you can also do a little bit of role playing because yeah. we were like talking back and <laughs> forth, right? Yeah. And we had uh, we had that moment um, where we met a farseer, and you were being taken over by a demon or something to that effect. Yeah, I was losing control of my character, and I got a very interesting set of dialogue options. <laughs> and, and so you had to choose then whether you wanted to side with him or side against him. So then. yeah, um, and so I ended up siding with him because I'm nice. I yeah. like people. Yeah. Maybe people died. You know, things happen. Yeah. That's a, that's <laughs> I, because you asked about systems before, um, to be able to do that, uh, one one of the rules that we have to have, you have to be able to kill everybody in the game, and the story still has to be able to to handle that. And so that's one one of the things we started learning in the first original sin. So we've evolved since then. We know a lot more narrative tricks to make that keep on working. And so it's okay if you kill everybody in that cave, but it would have been okay also if you would have uh, started hitting them on Chris, because if Chris would have been at 50% uh, health, if he would have survived your initial attack, and then he would have come back to his senses. So the scripters are taking care of an enormous amount of cases to mm. just give you that freedom when you're playing it. But as a player, it all comes very natural. Uh, I, at least that's what we're trying. Trying to make it more of a seamless experience. Yeah. I found it interesting. So the big feature of Divinity Original Sin 2, so the, in the original of Divinity Original Sin you created, you basically rolled a character, right? You rolled yeah. your own character, you were playing yourself. I mean, there was conversation back mm -hmm. and forth with the other character, but otherwise you were playing yourself. In this one, you can have pre-rolled characters. Yeah. Uh, so you have a an elf mage. Uh, this isn't like an elven mage. Um, the, well, the, the actual class you can select. Uh, so you, mm -hmm. there's, there's really a, there's a truckload of them. Eh? Uh, mm -hmm. So... If you take your origin stories, like uh, you were playing Sibyl, uh, and yes. so she is by definition going to be uh, gender female and race elf, uh, but you can pick whatever class you want for her, because, well, it's classes actually, so you can pick whatever starting sets you have. You so, can also alter, like, character features and everything. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you can really, and we didn't go into the customization, but you really can go deeply if you want. Mm. You can go, because we didn't look at talents and abilities and all the interactions and starting set skills, so... If, you, if you're that type of player, you can spend a couple of days in the character creation screen if you want, setting up the perfect character and then also giving them narrative tags, like for instance, uh, jester, mystic, scholar, uh, hero. Hero is an interesting one because if you, if you pick hero, you have to adhere to certain standards or otherwise you lose it. And same goes for villain. You have to adhere to certain standards or otherwise you lose your tag, which is also, that's the systemics that you can start doing when you have a system like that uh, so so well supported. Uh, so yeah, there's there's... Just those character creation options, they, they already define a lot uh, when you start playing. I found it interesting that as I was playing, like initially I was just selecting one options that kind of went with me, but you have character-specific dialogue options. Yeah. 
And I was like, oh, I just started picking those because it, it was more fun, right? I was kind of role-playing outside of my usual uh, line of thinking with this character. Yeah, that's up to you. And so the, all the options are there. And then depending on which character you actually control, it changes even in your own party. So if it's a... And you start learning that very quickly because it becomes part of the gameplay. I'll deal with this with my lizard. I'll deal with this with my necromancer. And because it makes sense, or there's a in the opening uh, area for Joy, and there's a lot of ducks. So you can actually have a guy who is the founder of the Lone Moose, which they revere. And so if you talk with him, you're going to get options. Oh my God, you're a fun. Uh, let them pass through. So and it's really rewarding when you see that, like uh, because there's a little dialogue lines like that's if I'm Ben Matt's passing by. Pass on through, and it, it re- you really feel like okay, I am. Nice and reactive, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I am if I'm been met then. So mm-hmm. and that is fun. Yeah, I was really getting into the role of the Red Prince, who yeah. was uh, the the Lizard Prince, who has apparently been framed yeah. by his wife and child, which not very cool. He's got a he's got a great yeah. origin story. Right. Yeah, that, that's that's Jan's character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jan did a fantastic. He's yeah. one of the writers, writers of the project, and one, the origin story is wonderful. Yeah. Now, the fun thing is that you started with Sibyl, and then because you switched to Red Prince, and you did it by accident because you needed his racial skills and abilities, and then you just went with him, and so you had an entire different perspective on the world, which is I, which I really like about this game. And you haven't really seen it in another RPG actually, because it's always the Avatar, otherwise that's it. Decides, and this here everybody's equal for the law. Well, not really equal, but has a, a equally interesting story to be told within the world. Chris. Having worked on so many RPGs over the years, um, I mean, you've like probably made every kind of quest under the sun. How do you keep it fresh? Like, how do you like keep coming up with fresh ideas and new new approaches as you like make another make another really big RPG? Um, there's a few things uh, that I try and do. One is um, when you when you realize you've done a quest before and you kind of gotten out of your system. You sort of mentally realize you really can't do that same type of quest again. So then you think you try and think of ways to like layer it or try like do a hundred eighty degree turn on it. Like um, and Bethesda had a fantastic way of doing it, where they would they had a fetch quest where the guy actually didn't want the item that you're trying to give to him. So you have to figure out a way to slip it to him somehow. And that was really clever. That's a, that's a, that's a nice reversal of a yeah. fetch quest. But when you start seeing quests in that light. You start looking for ways to play around with them like that, and also I do like a lot of comic book reading and book reading, and, and I sometimes ideas will come out of uh, prose that seem like to be interesting quest ideas too. So, are you reading any interesting books right now? Yes, Creativity Incorporated, which oh. told me that uh, all the original ideas for the Pixar movies were not anything like what they finally turned out to be, and that just shows the power of iteration. Yeah, I agree. Well, when you literally sketch like six of your movies at lunch, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you're probably going to end up like having some changes as time yeah. goes on, right? Yeah. So, how many characters are actually in Divinity: Original Sin Two? You mean Origin Quests? Yeah, uh, we have six, and maybe there will be eight by the time we release. So we'll see. And just to be clear, you can also create your own character, yeah. and, but with your own kind of set of background, just yeah. in case you're like. You want to take an approach. It's really nice to have all of those options, but yeah. God, that must be a lot of work on your end. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah no, 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 it, it is really a lot of work. I mean, the the writing team for the first original sin was one and a, a half writer because Sarah joined mid uh, mid project, and uh, now we're at eight uh, that are writing full time on it and that have been at it uh, for yeah, almost two years now. So, how big is your team now? Uh, we are currently 113 people working on this one. 113 people. Yeah. That's uh, tr- 
almost four, well, three times as much as the first original sin. So you guys are independent. Yeah. And you're not self-publishing. Yeah, we are. You're self-publishing. Yeah. So you're the definition of an independent mid-sized studio, which is kind of a, a tough place to be these days. Like, what's that like? I don't know. If, uh, well, we've been lucky, right? Um, Original Sin 1 really broke through, sold really a lot of units, and we self-published that. So we, we had the benefit that each unit immediately came to the studio, allowed us to reinvest it into, into the company. Um, so now we're going to see if that we can repeat it. Uh, we want to because we, we really like what we do. Uh, and... Uh, we're now making a, a bigger RPG, so we'll see how that works. Um, and if it doesn't work out, then we'll, then we'll try something else. You guys are like, you're kind of old school, right? Because it's like you're making this very classical style of RPG, really big, really ambitious. And it, that must be like put a lot of strain on a studio your size. Oh, it comes natural. <laughs> I mean, it is, honestly, that's it. I mean, I don't think we could do it differently. Yeah. Uh, this is what we want to do. So uh, it's this type of game that we've been trying to make uh, all those years. And uh, we've always adapted because we needed a publishing deal. So that really put a lot of compromises on our design. So now we're finally free. So we're making our thing. And um, I mean, we have a lot of fans that, that like this, luckily, for us. So hopefully if we keep on making them good, they'll keep on supporting us. And then we can, we can continue making them. I mean, the benefit of having a, being known at this point um, yeah, and having a, an established community who was like a big fan of your yeah. site, like that's like self-fueling, right? Uh, Obsidian certainly had a very similar thing in Black Isle before that. You're kind of sustained by your community. Yeah, uh, so, yeah community is key for us. I mean, uh, without, without them, none of this would be possible. Uh, Chris, I mean, so I talked to Obsidian and one about Pillars of Eternity a while ago, and there was talk about how, for a while, the isometric RPG as we knew it went away, and it was, everybody was very sad, and then it finally, it kind of came back into style, and um, a lot of that was due to crowdfunding, a lot of that was due to new distribution models, and a lot of that was just... People, there. You, you can cater to niches that want a really nice, meaty RPG that's kind of in the old style. Now, this isn't quite the same as the old Black Isle ones, but, I mean, it's in a similar vein. So, I'm kind of curious, like, what your perspective is on the comeback of, like, this style of RPG. Well, I think it's a lot of what you're saying. Like, I don't think it actually ever went out of style. There was always a passionate fan base for it. I just think with uh, with the crowdsourcing and internet and digital distribution, that's all allowed that community to actually have a voice to say, hey, not only do we want this type of game, we're also going to help finance that type of game. And, like, it's not not a publisher's fault that they wouldn't want to do an isometric RPG. Like, they would take a loss on something like that. Or it it would be a, a distraction from a bigger target style game. But if you actually approach the community and you find those fans, you're like, we would like to do an isometric RPG. And like, well, that's great. We'd love to help you finance that game. And the community's got your back. So that's great. So we've already talked about um, the new origin stories. We've talked a little bit about how you've refined the combat. Are there any kind of like uh, more under the radar changes? Yeah, um, there's the uh, game master mode, which we're not showing yet. But that's, okay. that's going to be a very big thing. Uh, that is something where we take a different approach than anybody's taken before on game mastering. Uh, and so we, we're having a lot of fun uh, testing it. So that's going to be a big thing. Um, then I think that um, there's so many things in this game. 
there's so many systems <laughs> at play. I mean, it's just the crime system alone. And if you look at the ramifications of that on, and how you can use it to, like, if I increase tension, there's going to be more guards investigating, so I can ruin one of Chris's quests just for my personal entertainment. Uh, <laughs> and I can watch it happen while he doesn't even see it and then passing by. Uh, so there's, there's so much things that you can do. It's really, it really feels like, a, a, in my, my view, a, 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 a good rule system. Uh, which leads to all kinds of gameplay which you don't expect, like what you guys have been doing there, uh, sneaking all the way to the guy, and you, you almost got away with it also, So, which is fine. It's perfectly legit. Yeah, we uh, took on the, the sneaking, and we just were dressed as boulders, essentially. Yeah. We, were, we were doing the solid snake thing. Yeah. And we were sneaking all the way through, but then we tried to sneak a little too close to the boss. You and turned, yeah. But if you wouldn't have turned, you would have managed. I mean, so you would probably uh, you would have had to take the key uh, mm. to the door, which lead to the sewers, uh, using pickpocketing, and so, but you, you still had some uh, ability points. So you could have, I would have actually suggested put the points in there, pickpocket them, and because the rule is a key cannot come out of nowhere, it has to be in the inventory. You guaranteed that the key would be in there. I assume actually because I, I never tried it, but I, I would imagine that it's there. Um, just kind of a side note: um, Can you speak to like how Divinity Original Sin like did on the console, like? did quite well actually uh, mm -hmm. much better than I expected uh, I think that the proportion of cells is going to be uh, I think 40% of PC 50% maybe even uh, I'd have to look but that's, so that's quite good uh, for a turn-based RPG on console but I think that the, the fact that we had the, the split-screen co-op in there was a, was a very big because I hear a lot mm -hmm. of people played it uh, uh, with their wives or with their partners and a lot of uh, friends getting back together in front of the same screen because it's a thing that you play for 100 hours right so one mode, which I hope that we're going to do, because we're, we, we currently do not have controller support on Original Sin 2, uh, but what I would really like to do is if you, we have four-player support, so two couples can play against each other in co-op. So one at home, <laughs> the other at home, they're playing in co-op, and they're using the narrative PvP against each other. I think that's going to lead to fantastic fun. Now that's the funny thing, is that people are like, well, uh, couch co-op is dead. Yeah. Couch multiplayer <laughs> is dead. And yeah, Diablo 3 on the PlayStation 4 ended up cleaning up and doing really well because it had that casual kind of like gameplay. Slow fun. I mean, yeah. I, this is like getting off track, but I played with my friends in Washington, D.C., and we had a party of four, two of us in San Francisco, there two of go. us in Washington, D.C., we were all playing. And so just that having that coach co-op can be a lot of fun because yeah. I mean, there's a... It's more personal, right? Absolutely, and this is uh, this is back to the days of the Amiga and the Commodore 64. You had friends coming over, you sat next in front of your television, and that was, in my opinion, still my best gaming moments that I've ever had. So you, there can't be enough coach co-op games. Or even going, like, traditional tabletop gaming. I mean... There you go, yeah. I mean, that is so much at the core of the RPG experience, and yeah. your, your game, like, really captures that with its multiplayer. That, that's the core vision behind it. I mean, capturing that, that uh, and so all the systems are in, in service of that feeling, right? And it strengthens the single player because, as a result, you have so many more options in single player. Um, so ultimately, Divinity Original Sin 2 brings a lot of interesting new ideas to the table, especially the origin stories. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like, it's very familiar if you've picked up the original Divinity Original Sin. Like, what would you say to a person who goes, oh, it's too similar to the original game? I suggest try to play it, <laughs> and then you'll 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 feel it. I mean, it it starts 
of like, oh, I, I know this, and then you see, okay, well, party inventories, that's that's a nice innovation. Oh, look at that, cursed surfaces, I can do this. Uh, you hold that shift key, you say, oh my god, I see the entire vision range. Then suddenly, oh my god, they saw that I picked that up. I, I, I stole a painting, which was a popular pastime in the original Sin 1. Uh, now suddenly somebody says, hey, guards, can you come and look? Somebody stole this painting. Can you find the guy? The guard comes to you and says, show me your inventory. And say, I'm not good. I can try persuasion event. It's all deeper. And so um, when you add depth, it's not maybe flashy or visual on the on, on front, although the engine has changed. The graphics, I think, look uh, way uh, better than than the first original Sin did. Um, so all those, those that, that depth, you feel it very rapidly when you're playing, and um, the the writing, I think, is also a lot better. It's really uh, the fact that the writers have more time to iterate shows off. Um, so when you then suddenly, for once, you change your character and you get different dialogue options, you say, "My God, did they do this for everything?" So you go and try it. They say, "Shit, they did it for everything." Uh, and then that that is uh, that's a lot of innovation. So. Uh, this is kind of a big question, but when you're people have been playing these types of RPGs for a very long time, like why do people keep kind of going back to this old school feel? Like in your opinion, like what what seems to grab them? <laughs> that's a that's a very good question. I think that it is um, the freedom that they give you to do things and see that they actually have a consequence in the world and that uh, the world reacts to it. If you're making this super triple A RPG where uh, every single pixel on the screen costs like a couple of thousand dollars, uh, the, automatically as a developer you're going to be cutting corners. You will not be able to give like an A. I have, for certain, like, there's things in there with 50 solutions, right? I mean, I'm just making up the number 50, but I know like I, I know the flowcharts, I know how massive they are. If you have to go and make your cutscenes in your AAA RPG or AAA action adventure for every single one of those, that's just one situation. And then you want to make a game that lasts 100 hours, it's, an, it's almost impossible to go and do. So our type of game caters to that. So they say, you okay, at the, at the loss of all that cutscene polish, uh, we're giving you much more freedom. And that's, that's, it's nice to be free in worlds like this. We're kind of at that point where we're almost like post the the huge AAA experience. I mean, like Fallout Four, of course, is going to sell millions upon millions of copies, and and it did, and people, and it provided one kind of experience. But it almost, but it feels like you can get away with so much more in terms of the graphics now, and it's kind of liberating. Mm -hmm. It feels good. Do you do you have a perspective on this, Chris? Uh, yeah, actually. Uh Two things. One is I find that a lot of isometric RPGs players have usually found at least one that they love, and the, and and as soon as that happens, then they want to repeat that experience. And that's that's one aspect of it. The other thing I noticed by Black Isle was it was sort of a chain of nostalgia that would keep feeding the feeding feeding RPGs. And like pen and paper, like went to like the SSI Gold Box games, but then when we were doing Baldur's Gate. People got excited about Baldur's Gate because, like, oh, well, it's the Gold Box games, but now it's revamped. But because they were remembering that old experience they loved so much, which in turn was fueled by the pen and paper experience, that chain just keeps going. It's when people like just get get the lid next RPG, and I think that that fueled a lot of their energy and their excitement about it. The old nostalgia engine. Yep. Yeah, until you go back and play them, you say, "Oh my god!" <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's quite a shock. I, I played Pools of Radiance the other day again. Oh, <laughs> so that was a uh, that was interesting. <laughs> I bet it was. <laughs> I didn't survive very long. <laughs> I bet you didn't. Yeah, yeah. 
And meanwhile, you're people playing roguelikes from the early 1980s still. Yeah. Like, really hardcore. Like, it's just little ASCII keys. It doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> well, what are your kind of ultimate hopes for Divinity Original Sin 2? Aside from selling them really well, of course. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm first of all, I'm totally in love with this game. So, like anybody in love, I will, I will only idealize it. Uh, but I, I hope that people are going to tell stories to each other, and when they tell these stories of what happened in the game, there they will realize this is not the same story. Right, my story is completely. You already had that a little bit with the first original sin, but with this one, I well, I mean, well, you've played a couple of sessions today. You have two completely different experiences. I saw many different quests on that I haven't seen yeah. before. Yeah, like when you when you uh, sorry, the, not, yeah. not the listener, but the uh, uh, when cat cat uh, was playing hide and go seek with one of the kids in a cave, and I'm like, yeah. okay, well, that won't go anywhere, and then it did, mm-hmm. and then it went to a brand new quest line I hadn't seen before, which right. was awesome, and I'm like. I wonder how much other stuff I'm missing in the game. <laughs> yeah. And there's really a lot of it, actually. It's, uh, and it, it, it flows into each other. We have this really, really complex, really complex system going on, uh, but it works. Uh, so if you apply it rigorously, you can really do a lot of things. Chris, you got anything to add? Uh, I'm really fascinated by the uh, party intrigue mechanics. I, I think it's an idea that I would have been skeptical about had it just been told to me, but actually to see it in action, I think it's pretty cool. All right, where and when can we get your game? Well, on uh, September 15th, it's going to hit early access, and then we'll see how that goes. And then when that goes well, then we'll know when we're going to see it into the world. But that's going to be depending on how the early access goes. I think a lot of people are really excited to play it. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Chris. And good luck on your game. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we're back. I'm back here with Bob, and we are actually just going to wrap up the episode now. Acts of Blood God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and a variety of other outlets. Please rate, subscribe, review us. Um, yeah, if you like the podcast, we really would love to hear see your ratings. Uh, tell your friends, share it around. It would, it would be really awesome because we love talking about RPGs and we want all of the RPG fans to be able to hear our podcast. Next week, we are going to be talking about the new Fallout 4 DLC, which will be uh, the final piece of DLC for that series or for Fallout 4. And hopefully we'll get a new Elder Scrolls game for realsies next year. Um, We'll see. And uh, I'm sure we'll be taking more underrated RPG pitches and we'll get back to Super NES games in perspective. I've been sitting on Fire Emblem and Final Fantasy. Um, Like, I don't know when I'm going to pull the trigger on Final Fantasy, but it's going to happen. We're going to talk about Final Fantasy. Maybe next week, maybe the week after. Uh, Fire Emblem still has to happen. Um, it would be nice if I could get somebody on there who could, on here who could talk knowledgeably about Super Robot Wars so I could do that, but we will see. Um, in the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. You can fi- follow Bob on Twitter at BobServo. Um, and also make sure to check out his podcast, Talking Simpsons and Retronauts. If you enjoy our podcast, go check out our flagship podcast from us to you, as well as the aforementioned Retronauts. And of course, we are streaming like every freaking day now. Um, it's really it's remarkable. Bob just did a Super Nintendo collection stream. Bob, what did you stream? 
I streamed uh, Star Fox, Solution of Gaia, and Contra 3, The Alien Wars. And that, that's already on our YouTube account if you want to watch it. Yeah, go check it out. Um, I was like scrolling through it. And mostly I just wanted to hear that music from the end of the first level of Contra 3. Um, oh, that's good. You're yeah. finding the turtle. And it's really good music, right? I Yeah. I, it, unfortunately, the Star Fox SNES music was playing before that. So I'm, I was spoiled by that point. I love the Star Fox soundtrack. <laughs> Way better than the N64 one, which is also good and catchy. But that, that SNES soundtrack is great. Minor digression, when Star Fox 64 first came out um, and I heard that game's soundtrack, I was like, ugh, what have they done to the soundtrack? The soundtrack was amazing and they completely ruined it. I, I do miss, I mean, the instrumentation could never be as good as the SNES, but I, I just do miss the, the theme. The, mm-hmm. I, I don't like the N64 theme as much as I like the SNES theme. I still really like the... I, I've come to really love the Star Fox 64 uh, soundtrack um, in much the same way as I really came to love Ocarina Time's soundtrack. But at the time, I was like, what the hell, Ocarina Time? You don't even have the Zelda anthem. Mm. What are you doing? Jeez, God, Nintendo, don't understand soundtracks. That's why they put it in Majora's Mask, because everybody complained. I sure did. I mean, <laughs> you're running th- across a freaking overworld. You better hear that stupid uh overworld theme i can i can add another digression to this i think i think in my interview with koji kondo maybe it wasn't mine it was somebody's it came up at some point he's like well you didn't use a zelda theme because you're gonna you're gonna be running through this um running through this field for like five or six minutes and that would just be too repetitive so we wanted to come up with like a a much bigger piece of music so i think that that was the reason why and and that was probably the right decision yeah to his credit that zelda theme does get really repetitive in majora's mask so he probably was right to the past it does yeah i guess it does yeah whatever anyway (laughs) yeah go check out retronauts it's a good podcast but this has been another episode of acts of blood god i've been cat bailey thanks bob for dropping by and chatting a little bit about robotrek no problem and until next time uh we'll see you again and happy adventuring Thank you.